Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Morning Steve. Good morning Bill. What we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the idea of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. With a bit of construction today, yeah. as it turns out. <laughs> so today's episode is going to be a little bit different because um, a natural history topic was kind of chosen for us, fell into our laps, mm -hmm. and uh, we did uh, a minimum amount of research <laughs> because we have a third person here with us today, and they're going to be doing most of the heavy lifting when it comes to uh, our topic today. This is actually going to be the fourth episode in uh, a series that we've done with New York State Parks. So... Folks, you may have listened to the episodes in the past. We did one on grassland restoration that New York State Parks was working on. We talked about uh, native ecotypes that New York State Parks were growing at Sonnenberg Gardens. And then the last one was the Hart's Tongue Fern yeah, right. with Mike's service <laughs> yeah. and how New York State Parks is working to preserve that endangered species. So today, we are lucky enough to have with us Claire Nellis, who is the Piping Plover Project Coordinator for New York State Parks in the central region. So good morning, Claire, and thank you for being here today. Good morning, I'm excited <laughs> to be here today. Yeah, so give us the answer to the most important question. Is it plover or <laughs> plover? <laughs> we were just talking about this beforehand. I say plover, but my supervisor says plover, so. I've heard both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we should let people know that um, where we are, we're in Palas, Sky. Pulaski, yeah, Sky, New yeah. York. Yeah, I was it's, saying Pulaski. It's yeah. wrong. It should be Pulaski, but we say Pulaski. Yeah, and we uh -huh. are on the eastern shores of Lake Ontario to give people an idea of where we are. So we're a little farther afield. We're not right around Buffalo where we usually are. Yeah. Uh, we also have some other people that may be on mic. Uh, longtime listeners, you might recognize the name Tom Kerr. So he's going to be with us today. Mm -hmm. We're going to try to encourage Tom to say something because uh, he's worked with plovers before. Um, when he was working near New York City. Yep. So Tom will probably chime in. He probably can't help himself from chiming in. <laughs> he did most of the talking on the way here today. Uh -huh. <laughs> but Claire... I love that when we talk about Tom on the podcast, we're usually making fun of him. <laughs> but with love. <laughs> yeah. With, I mean, we only do it because we like him. Yeah. So Claire, could you give the audience an idea, though, of your position here as the Piping Plover Project Coordinator? Like, what does your job entail? Yeah, so um, my large part of my job entails being physically at the beach with the piping plovers. Um, and so we're doing outreach and education to let patrons know that the birds are out there and how they can help to conserve them. And then as the coordinator and having this species recently returned to the area, we work with a lot of different agencies. So um, coordinating with SUNY ESF, who helps us a lot, DEC, and Audubon Society, and then other people involved in parks. So SUNY ESF, for listeners that may not know, that's the, the College of Environmental Science and Forestry, one of our mm -hmm. state universities. And then the DEC, we've mentioned them before, that's the New York State's Department of Environmental Conservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you got a whole lot of people working. Yeah. And, you know, we should really also mention, for listeners that may not know, what is a piping plover? Yeah, so it's a small shorebird. It weighs the same as a stick of butter as an adult, which is always a That's fun an fact to let people know. A lot of people are like, you're out here for the seagulls? I'm like, no, this is a really little bird. And they're federally endangered, the Great Lakes population. This year, so far, they've documented 64 nesting pairs in all of the Great Lakes. But the one we have here is the only nesting pair in New York State. 
And so... Really? Um, wow. On the Great Lakes? On the Great Lakes. So okay. the Atlantic coast population has... They're considered federally threatened. And then the Great Plains population is also federally threatened. So they're doing mildly better. Still need a lot of help. But the Great Lakes population is endangered. Okay. Yeah, so there's really... I was in some of my reading. I saw that there's really two subspecies, right? And one of the subspecies is on the Atlantic coast and the Great Lakes, and then there's the Midwest population as well. Yep. They, they look similar. There's some visual differences, right? Yeah, I think you, the average person wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Right. So they all winter in, like, the south, mainly Florida and Georgia, and they pretty well look the same. All right, and why don't we, you know, we'll get into descriptions and things like that a little later on, but why don't you tell people where are we going today? So go, yeah. I should tell people, I'm sorry, I forgot. I didn't tell people where we are, besides saying that we are on the eastern shore of Lake Ontario. And in Pulaski. Yeah, in Pulaski. (laughs) We are at Sandy Island Beach State Park. So right now, folks, we're standing near the the parking lot, um, the beach is in the distance, but we are getting ready to get on a boat because, Claire, where are we going? Yeah, so we're going to another part of Sandy Island Beach State Park. It's separated by private property. And so you have to access it by boat, and most locals call it Boater's Beach. So you'll either come to it across Lake Ontario from another boat launch, or the body of water we'll be on is North Sandy Pond. And so we'll travel across that and land at Boater's Beach. All right, so this is new. We've never been on a boat on recording before. And it just dawned on me, and maybe you'll get into this, but is it a bad thing that it's called Boater's Beach? Like, does that interrupt anything? (laughs) Oh. For the plovers, you mean? Yeah. 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 Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I just thought about that. Yeah. Like, uh, well. We'll get into that. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so folks, what you're going to hear, you're going to hear the sound of the boat starting up. We're probably not going to be able to too much talking on the boat, too yeah. much wind. Um, and then we're going to see how recording goes once we get to our site. Yeah, be prepared for wind, guys. All right, let's go. <laughs> what is on your Me? <laughs> donuts. Two cups of donuts? Yeah. Donuts Thank you. Cute. <laughs> We're gonna get up on plane. Are you guys ready? Yeah. We're ready. Ready to get what? here we are on the beach and uh, Claire why don't you give everybody an idea of what we're gonna be doing yeah so we just arrived um, we're on the pond side and about to walk across to the lakeside where the plovers usually hang out so there's a fenced off area that they nested in and tend to forage along and so we're gonna head into the wind and see if we can find our chick that's still here yeah that's another warning (laughs) (laughs) and to give people just an idea of what it looks like around. We have, we're on a, a beachy area. We have a, a little flock on the sand here, Tom. Tell everybody, what's the little flock they're made up of? Caspian terns and ring-billed gulls. All right, and what are we hearing? Caspian terns. All right, can you hear that on the mic? common yeah. terns, I think. Yeah, common yeah, there's terns a few out here. here, too. There's okay. common terns behind me. Right. And that's a good sign, too, right? Common terns? Yeah. Right? Yeah, they're state-threatened. Yeah. So, yeah, we're glad to have them out here. All right, well, let's go. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's probably pretty good to have common turn nests here because they'll keep a lot of people away. Because co- common turns will actually make contact with you if you get too close to their nest. They'll, 
actually dive bomb you and hit you. Wow. <laughs> Has that happened here? It, not that I'm aware of. There was a common turn nest uh, last year. Last year. feet in water. <laughs> Very comfortable. So folks, we have just come off of a walk along the beach. Uh, we are now standing in a, a sheltered little cove here. What is this called? Moon Cove. Moon Cove. Uh, we wanted to get out of the wind. It was really just too windy out on the beach for us to record. We were hoping we could, but couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. So we are standing in the water to uh, try to cool us off. We are also standing in the blazing sun. <laughs> yeah. It's not we, bad right now, though. No, no. We will do our best. But just to give you an idea of what we just experienced. We were walking along the beach, um, lots of waves along the shore, and as we mentioned, lots of gulls and turns, but we were able to get a sighting of the plover chick. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we saw one, and you think uh, you think that's the only one that's here right now, right? Yeah, so they had two adults that came here and nested, and they had four eggs, three hatched. The second, the fourth one was determined unviable. Um, and then, unfortunately, we lost one chick after it was banded. And then we had two chicks, both of the adults, and one of the chicks have flown south for the winter already, and one's still just hanging out here. And the one that lo was lost, what happened to it? We don't know. So um, we checked it on a Monday, and then because of weather, we couldn't get here again until a Thursday and so something between Tuesday and Wednesday happened. It was mm. over 10 years old though so it's, or I'm sorry, 10 days. <laughs> um, <laughs> <the> old clover. <laughs> 10 days old so they can move really quickly and could normally evade ground predators at that point and so our best guess is that an owl nabbed it or something uh, which is hard to prevent right. and we still had Owl's two chicks eat. so yeah. that's right. Um, well let's give, let's give people an idea, again for people that don't know what a plover is because honestly before today i've never seen in person a piping plover have mm -hmm. you seen i mean i've seen plovers and sandpipers and you know that. Yeah. so i'm generally aware of the body shape and right uh, oh even though those are two different families right so right yes yeah yep. yeah but claire can you give people an idea of what it looks like yeah so um i usually start with asking if people are familiar with a killdeer and if they are they look very similar to that, but uh, more sandy colored. And instead of two black bands, they only have one. If you're not familiar with a killdeer, that's okay. The breast um, band, right? Yeah, the breast band. Mm. Um, they're a stout little shorebird. And so they have orange legs and then their belly is white and they have a light gray sand colored back and head. When they're in breeding plumage, the adults have a half orange, half black bill and they have that black band across their neck, chest area, and they also have one that kind of connects their eyes like a unibrow. And that's oh. male and females both in <laughs> there? Male and females, yeah, they look almost the same. Okay. Um, I, I, was, I thought I would read that the, the male has a larger band, is yeah. that true? Yeah, so within a pair, generally, you can tell the male by having a more distinct chest band and then the uh, difference between the orange and the black on the bill is mm. more distinct whereas the females will kind of fade in and so it's not as easy to say this is the, the mark between right and then you're even more out of luck I'm sure if uh, you're only seeing the male or only seeing the female yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so it's not a reliable way to tell and then once you have them in hand you can tell by the usual and then during the winter non-breeding time 
they lose the orange part of their bill and it's all black and they lose that dark band as well. Okay. So they look a lot like the juvenile that we just saw. So mm -hmm. juveniles, once they become fledglings and are pretty much adult sized, they have the same general body shape and same color of the white on bottom and the sand on top, but they don't have that black band or the half orange, half black bill. Yeah, because this one we saw, the, the bill seemed all black, right? Yep, yep. And it just seemed kind of white and a little bit fluffier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very cute. Yes. Very cute. Mm -hmm. They look like a little wind-up toy running. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Their little legs move so fast that they just float across the sand. So yeah. if people were going to look for clovers, um, we mentioned it a little earlier in the episode that you can find them in the, the Midwest, mm -hmm. but then along the Atlantic coast and then around the Great Lakes. And if they were in those areas, if they knew they were in clover, clover habitat, like where would they look on the beach? Yeah, so they, because they're mostly shorebirds and they're on the ground, unlike gulls, they don't fly out and catch fish. They run along the ground close to the shore to eat invertebrates, and then they run back up to be closer to the dunes, kind of to rest and for protection. And so anywhere on the beach that it has a nice flat, sandy area where they can navigate easily. And so at this beach specifically, as we were walking south, the dunes got sharper and kind of more cut off and eroded. Mm -hmm. And so they generally aren't as far south because they can't run right back up that and into the dunes. So they like to be where the sand gets washed over as well and it generally stays kind of wet. And that just provides better foraging for them as well as maneuverability. What about, you know, the amount of vegetation on the beach? Yeah. Is that bad for them, good for them? So obviously they need some vegetation to hold the beach in place, but they also do better in sparser vegetation. And especially for nesting, they like to have that really open beach. And it kind of seems silly sometimes that they just plop down, scrape out some sand and lay eggs. And it looks a little irresponsible yeah. to the untrained <laughs> eye. Like but the bird doesn't know what yeah, it's doing. Yeah, like, yeah. why here? Yeah. Um, How has it survived for so <laughs> long? But it's eggs camouflage incredibly well with the sand, and they'll also line their nest with shells. And so the zebra mussel and the quagga mussel that washes up on the beach, they'll camouflage with that. <laughs> and if you don't know what you're looking for, you could very easily even step on a nest because they blend in incredibly yeah. well. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about nesting and, and breeding. So typically they're going to come back. Let me see if I can remember this right. Uh, like late March, early April. Do I have that right? Yep. yep. Okay. So the, and the males, they try to set up a nest first? Yeah. It? So I think the general population of Great Lakes Clovers, the males come back first. Our pair, the female came back first, so a little bit funny. But our male doesn't have any others to defend against. <laughs> That's why. His job's easy. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, although he will harass some other other shorebirds, even oh, if really? they're not. Yeah, he'll wow. go after killdeer and semi-palmated clovers especially. He's really territorial with. <laughs> So the males come back, set up a territory, they'll start doing some scrapes, and then uh, start courtship when the females come back too, and they have some really fun <laughs> courtship that they do. So they do something called goose stepping, where they just get close <laughs> to the female and kick their legs out straight. Um, I'll have to look up a video for it, it's yeah. awesome. <laughs> uh, have you seen it? I haven't personally. Oh. So I didn't start until at this job until May this year because mm -hmm. of everything going on. Um, I guess if you're listening to this way in future years, the COVID yeah. pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So I missed it this year, but I looked it up and I'm looking forward to seeing it next year. Cool. Yeah. Nice. So the, the males, uh, they set up the scrape first. And I thought I read that the females then do the camouflaging. Is that right? That could be. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure. I know that they both tend the nest pretty equally. And with our pair individually, we observed that the male was really, really the main one tending the nest, even oh. brooding the eggs. Um, we'd kind of joke about it that the female would sit on the nest and then she would just fly off and meet the male on the shore and be like, all right, your turn. <laughs> and the male would sit there forever and just wait for the female to come relieve him to mm -hmm. do the nest switch. We're like, and she was maybe. probably out partying with the semi-palmating. <laughs> That's right. She's like, I'm not chasing these guys. Up. <laughs> uh. Hey folks, we, just to remind everyone, we do have our friend Tom Kerr here and Tom, he's being very polite and quiet, but Tom, feel free to jump in because you have experience with, with clover, so. You know, we, we'd be happy to hear from you too, okay? <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. I so I've been on the citizen side of a uh, plover exclusion area. I used to vacation up in Wasaga Beach, Canada. And um, every year, you know, I'd go with one of my friend's families and we'd like walk up and down the beach. And we used to walk all the way to the end. And then one year, we just couldn't go all the way. It was uh, There was like a snow fence sort of blocking off a certain part of the beach. And we're like, what's going on here? And then I think one of the locals or someone had, had kind of filled us in on it. Um, I, or, or we saw a sign. I can't remember. It's been a while ago now. But yeah, so it, it was one of those things where I'm like, ah, it's kind of inconvenient. But I was already kind of getting into environmentalism at the time, and I started to appreciate biology a little, a little bit more at that point. So um, so I was definitely, you know, I was totally fine with it, but I'm like, ah, that, that you know, that yearly trip all the way down to the end of Wasaga Beach, you know. Yeah. Couldn't do it that time, but yeah, but uh, for you, a good cause. Did you get to see any birds or no? We did. We, we had oh, some tons, but I, I wasn't that great of a, you know, <laughs> birder back then. Um, not like now. Yeah, not like now. Now I'm the best. But uh, I, I did look at a um, an article on the way over here, and I guess last year they had 71 breeding pairs, which had gone up from like 16 in 1986. Yeah. So yeah. they've had a steady increase. So yeah. yeah. So why don't we talk about that, about the status of the populations? Because I think that'll be good. So in, in my quick overview of their, their status, they really have... Their populations have crashed since after World War II. Yes. Yep. Because of beach development mm -hmm. and beach stabilization, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, which is a good thing, is that if there's no beach stabilization, there's also not habitat for them. But over vegetation, they don't nest very well in. I yeah, it's almost counterintuitive because yeah. beach stabilization, you're like, oh, that's a good thing. Right. But for the plover who doesn't want a lot of vegetation. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I read one study. I'm just going to jump to it here. Mm -hmm. There was a study that looked at barrier islands in Virginia, North Carolina, New York, and Maryland. And they said from floods and other storms, habitat increased, get this, 27 to 950% wow. at those <laughs> sites. <laughs> Holy cow. And they said because of that, plover populations increased 72 to 622% after the event. Wow. wow. So these events would kind of clear out the beach and leave a lot more habitat. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting. It's almost counterintuitive. Right. Like you would think, oh, these would be bad for plovers. But then, Tom, you were saying that in New York City, um, it was bad because storms came during the nesting season, mm. right? Right. So I worked uh, on Rockaway Beach with piping plovers in 2009 and 2011. And in 2009, we had a lot of problems with storms that would... Um, it was just kind of like we had rain. We'd have lots of long rainy days, and that's not a good opportunity for chicks to forage. 
So they'd be spending a lot of time incubating under their parents instead of foraging. And um, we would just have big like washout storms at night and the, the tides would be so high. And on Great Lakes populations of piping plovers, the good thing is they don't, you don't have to worry about the tide. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would have chicks that would build their, or I'm sorry, we would have plovers that would build their nest below the high tide line. And the tide isn't the same level every day, but we would get at the, the high tide of the month, we would get nests washed away. So that was pretty frustrating. You're trying to help them, and at some point they have to help themselves. <laughs> right. And you were saying you would sometimes build little barriers? So we would have a pretty good idea of the tide schedule, and we would know that if a nest was in danger. And, you know, if the nest was a week old, we wouldn't necessarily do anything about it. There'd be times where we are like, we know this nest is really close to hatching and we think the tide in the next couple days is gonna get too high and wash it out. So what we would try to do is like collect driftwood and other things we could and kind of make like a V shape in front of the nest, maybe like 10 yards in front of the nest and to try to block out the tide from coming up. Um, But that would be something that we'd have to build very quickly because we wouldn't want to keep them off the nest. So we would go do that and then leave and then we'd shovel some sand on top of it and try to pack it down and make somewhat of a barrier to keep the tide from getting them, but the, the How tides... How did that work? Never. <laughs> the tide is a force you really can't hold back. Like uh-huh. Sisyphus. Yes. Um, but we tried, you know, it was it was our job to wash these and we would know the flood rate. Yeah. In, in 2010, I'm sorry, 2009, our flood rate was only five chicks out of over 20 pairs. Uh-huh. And then in 2010, we actually fledged zero chicks. The, the, there were problems with construction on the beach and predation and um, pedestrians pedestrians <laughs> uh, so I was a park ranger so I actually had peace officer status and I wore a badge and a uniform and a, and a ranger hat and we would do our best to keep people off the beach but you can only do so much right mm-hmm. yeah. so that's I mean that's the source of conflict because these birds they like beaches just like people do. Yeah. And they're nesting during prime beach time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were talking about their nesting. So that they return in late March, early April. When are they usually sitting on eggs by? Yeah. So they're usually sitting on eggs by end of May. And then most chicks hatch the first two weeks in June. So that's got to be a busy time of trying to protect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right around from Memorial Day to Father's Day. And hopefully by July 4th, you've got some pretty mobile chicks, but they're usually still really young and the adults are trying to keep an eye on them, but still let them get access to to the foraging right at the shoreline. Yeah. And they're um, eating mostly like crustaceans and mm-hmm. insects and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, any invertebrates that, and they'll even forage on the dry upper beach, but it's just not as um, worth their time, I guess, <laughs> not as beneficial as it not as much food available. So is it a big part of your job trying to protect the nesting site and then just the foraging sites, right? Yeah, yeah, so every weekend throughout the summer, myself or part of my crew is out here encouraging compliance with, <laughs> with the rules wow, of the Wow, that's a beach. nice way to say yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have that fenced off area that you were mentioning earlier and we have a walkway with string fencing that will move closer and closer as the water levels go down so that people can just walk by in twos or threes and not beach in front of it so that that foraging habitat is still available to them. And then when they still have their nest, we put a predator exclosure around it. So they 
first returned in 2016 to this area. Okay, so... Sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's good, because I'm, I'm just going to jump in, because we started talking a little bit about their status. Yeah. So, they started to decline after World War II. Yeah. And then there were conservation efforts that were starting, because, did I read right, since sometime in the 80s or 90s, the populations are increasing, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, so, so right now they're federally threatened. Endangered. Right? Endangered. Yep. So the Great Lakes population is endangered. Okay. Atlantic, coast, and mid the Great Plains. So I think that's a, that's a good point to make for the audience because sometimes people will just assume that a species, if it's endangered, the whole species is endangered. Right. But it's actually population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So here in the Great Lakes, they're harder to find. They're not doing as well as they are along the Atlantic coast. Mm -hmm. but what about the Midwest? They're also threatened, they're similar threatened. to the Atlantic coast. Okay, so yep. folks, if, if you're not sure, endangered is like the worst. Yes. In yep. danger of extinction. Well. Extinct. Well, right. Extinct <laughs> is the worst. You're right. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Uh -huh. But then threatened is they're in danger of becoming, or they're in danger of becoming endangered. Yeah. Got and, it. Uh, yep. But here in the Great Lakes, they're pretty rare. Yes. You said that this this beach here that you're working on, they have just returned when? Yeah, 2016. Yes, they've only been here four years. Yeah. All right. Um, and so... Looking at historical data in 1935, there were 14 nesting pairs just at this beach. And then by 1955, there were no nesting pairs at this beach. The eastern shore of Lake Ontario saw their last nesting pair in the mid-1980s. Oh. And in 1986 is when they were listed on the um, Endangered Species Act as federally endangered. Okay. And so they returned um, this property that we're on to the state park used to be private property and then was transferred over to the Nature Conservancy in 1994 and they did a lot of restoration of getting more vegetation out here holding the dunes in place. Were they trying to do that for plover populations or just in general? Just in general okay. to restore and protect the dunes and so also this area is part of a 17 mile chain of similar beaches along the Lake Ontario ecosystem and so they were just trying to restore the dunes in general but in doing so it protected area for the plovers to return and so um, the bonus yeah <laughs> love it in 2016, they returned, and that was the year they lost their nest to foxes. Oh. And so then in 2017, it was too high water, and there wasn't enough beach available for them to nest. But 2018, 19, and then this year, we've had the same pair of birds successfully nest in fledged chicks. So they're nice. our little success story. They've got their own but names we got, we and gotta everything. Be, we got to be hoping for more pairs in this one. Yes, we are. <laughs> we are. And this year Not was the... Not to knock them. No. <laughs> got to start somewhere. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, right, right. This year was the first year that one of their chicks had stopped back over here. Okay. And so it was an encouraging, encouraging note. She attempted to nest in Darlington, Canada, so really close to downtown Toronto kind oh, of um, I know well, not really close but you can see it in the background of the picture of her at the nest or at the beach unfortunately she wasn't successful but it's her first year attempting mm -hmm. so maybe she'll go there and try again or maybe come here and try again so it's encouraging. Yeah. so uh, I noticed that this chick was banded um, so can you tell us about the banding yeah so that's another main component of trying to conserve the Great Lakes population is tracking their numbers and how we're able to know that their populations are increasing. 
And so every nesting pair in the Great Lakes um, gets a unique band number and they get uh, orange flag on their leg that says it's part of the Great Lakes population and then they get a unique color combination that we can see to identify individuals as well as a USGS metal band. So that's how we were able to know that our individual chick that was hatched here tried to nest in Canada because researchers out there notified us. Imagine a world before banding. You, you just have a feeling that it was out near Toronto yeah, somewhere. I think it was her. <laughs> that's yeah. got, guys, that's got to be her. <laughs> So are there are there sites you know in the Great Lakes that that are doing really well or you know that you know of? So the Michigan was the source population, I guess. So that's where the all of the 16 pairs were in the 1980s, and so they've been dispersing out of there. I believe in 2015 or 16 was the first year that all of the Great Lakes had had a nesting pair on it again. Oh wow! Great. Um, and so that seems to be about the peak of the population. They've started to level off a little bit. Um, this year they've had 64 nesting pairs documented. Um, where? In all the Great in Lakes? In all of the Great Lakes, okay. yeah. So and That's, that's a big area though. It is. <laughs> I mean. It is. And hopefully more numbers will come in. Oh, thanks. Okay. So I wrote this down. That's okay. 2018 was the first year that there were piping plovers on all of the Great Lakes again. Um, and that was the year that our pair that's been here for three years fledged four chicks. And, and also the year that we named our adults. So uh, <laughs> because we have so few birds, not to super anthropomorphize them. <laughs> that's okay. Should have done. We all do. We it. do. Yeah, yeah. Um, they got named Aragorn and Arwen. Oh. And then their four chicks were <laughs> Gimli, Pippin, Mary, and Frodo. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> what about Sam? I was going to say. He's going right out of the Hobbit. What's wrong with Sean Astin, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the next year they nested and had three chicks and they got named Luke, Leia, and Chewy. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was Chewy that came back this year. On 4th of July of all days, um, we had about 2,000 patrons on the beach and she was Whoa. like, oh, mm -hmm. it's a good day to check this beach out. <laughs> um, so how many bird people would you say are total nerds? Because I know Tom appreciated those names. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. They're good people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when I worked when I worked in New York, in, in uh, Rockaway Beach with the piping plovers, what it always got me was how the piping plovers would show up in April, and there's nobody on the beach. It's cold. It's rainy. There's nobody there. The piping plovers find this humongous beach. Rockaway Beach is nine miles long. We would close off one mile about for their for their nesting. And so they'd be doing fine. They'd be doing great until like May when they open the beach on Memorial Day weekend. And then suddenly you go from zero people to thousands. And it's just like they don't know what to do. And I'd feel so bad for them. And you see, and you see the whole effect down the beach. It would push all the other birds down the beach into the nesting area, including the gulls that prey on them and the oyster catchers that bother them. Um, and sometimes we'd even see oyster catchers take out a plover nest. They just go and they just smash the eggs and run off. We have so, some young birds over here. That's okay. We can take a break for a sec. Who is that, Tom? Mallards. Okay. <laughs> well, are there are they only mallards, or are there some femaleards with them? <laughs> it's a female silence, mallard. Silence from Tom. <laughs> it's uh, a female mallard. We just lost half our audience. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, Tom was just talking about the traffic that he was getting at Rockaway. How much traffic do you guys get out here? Yeah. So similar for the size of our beach, we've got about a mile and a half of state park uh, beach here. 
and on Memorial Day weekend, I think we saw around 1,200, and then by July 4th weekend, there was well over 2,000 people oh, here. Holy cow! So and um, how how responsive are they to your efforts to educate them? I would say that most people are respectful of staying out of the areas we have fenced off. So out of a mile and a half of beach, we just have 100 meters of the shoreline fenced off. And mm -hmm. they can still get to the other side of it. We just ask that they walk along the shoreline. Because mm -hmm. you just um, have one pair. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe once we get As one. we get more successful, <laughs> it'll get more difficult, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is that a consideration you guys have where you're blocking out a certain amount of land per nesting pair like if there was more would you expand that area we would to yeah. a certain degree since it's a state park it'll always be available to patrons and so it's just striking that balance and respect between providing habitat for birds and promoting conservation as well as enjoying the recreation. beach here and recreation yeah um, and especially because this area started to be conserved while it was still private the locals that come to this beach have a lot of pride about it and they respect the dunes and for the most part stay off of them and we're starting to get them to learn to love the clovers too. <laughs> nice. uh, and you mentioned you're going to be doing some outreach right? Yes yeah. yeah so this is my full-time job with state parks throughout the year and we work with schools and different community groups um, to do education with kids so that they can be familiar with it and then if they come out here in the summer they have programs on too that um, they can see the birds and learn about their behavior and habitat and everything. Hopefully pass that information out. Yes, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> we're always encouraging people, you know, we're out here eight hours on the weekends and during the week too we frequently come out to check the birds and talk with people. But the more they can do to help kind of self-police, it's a huge help to us and to the ecosystem that they're enjoying as well. All right, and I think that's that's a good point is to let the listeners know what they can do to help clover populations. But before we do that, I know Tom has been itching to say something. So whenever I see a piping clover, I always tell, if anyone's with me, I tell them, like, no bird brings out the range of emotions that I have about birds like piping clover. I'm always so excited to see one with, you know, going back to the work I did with them. Uh, it brings back, like, just how happy I am to see, like, a, a chick is doing well, coming to a beach where people are protecting piping clovers, but there's also a lot of frustration built in for um, how hard it is to protect these birds with the issues that they face. So it is definitely, absolutely one of my favorite birds to find. And I'm wearing my piping clover t-shirt This is a <laughs> podcast so nobody can see it. Yeah, it's not a visual medium, but. Tom's shirt says, Rockaway is for plovers. <laughs> Very nice. But Tom, with what you just said, I think that speaks to how plovers, unlike, say, songbirds, where their conflicts with people are less direct. Whereas yes. here, we have humans directly competing with plovers. With their prime real estate. Right, with yeah. their prime real estate. So the, the conflict is just more direct. Right. Yeah. I mean, on the way here, it was a three-hour drive for us. Tom told us many stories of conflicts with people on the beach and wanting to use the beach and not understanding yeah. what's the big deal there's birds all over the beach <laughs> right you know. they see a sparrow they're like there's yeah. a plover right there <laughs> well they would see that they'd see they'd see flocks of like a thousand semi-pollinated plovers and i'd say well that's not what's wrong with you obviously that's not the one we're trying to protect look how many there are they're doing really great and you know when you protect one species it always helps other species too 
So, you know, protecting the piping plovers did give migratory habitat to the semi-palmated plovers. But, you know, there is a lot of frustration when suddenly, you know, you, you have a home near a beach and suddenly there's a mile-long string fence that's built with signs that say keep out. And this has been a beach you've been enjoying and you feel ownership over it. And you might be someone that feels ownership and comes out and cleans up garbage. Mm-hmm. Surfers would come up on Rockaway Beach and they'd come up and like the whole family of piping plovers would scatter. And we'd try to tell them, you know, please don't come up here. Like you can you can come up anywhere else, but just please don't come on shore here. And, and, and you know, it was, it was a, a hard time in getting them to understand that. We made friends with the guy that ran the surfing lessons. And so he was a respected guy and all the surfers knew him and looked up to him. And so we would get, we would get him on board. We would show him the piping plovers and say, Hey, can you help us out? Like, just let anyone, you know, that's surfing know that these birds are here and, and their habitat's really fragile. And like, they're just like, they need like perfect conditions to nest. So when the the plovers, how long do they usually use the beach until when do they need the beach? When do they leave, basically? Yeah, so they get here in uh, early April, and then they go through their nesting, and the adults generally leave around July, and the chicks can hang out until mid to late August. Oh, um, pretty much all summer. Yeah, (laughs) generally they're gone by the end of July. And so we've already had one chick migrate south. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you their names now, actually, for this year. We gave them individual bands with uh, color assigned to them. So this year's green dot was Fleetwood. He unfortunately was the one we lost. Oh. And then blue dot was Buckingham after Lindsay Buckingham. <laughs> and he was the first one to take off after the parents left. He's probably and very temperamental. Yeah. <laughs> Talented but temperamental. That's right. Hopefully a good flyer. Yeah. Um, and then red dot, Stevie Nicks is still hanging out, patrolling the beach and foraging here. So. Um, All right. And you know what? I just realized we didn't talk about what plovers sound like. Yeah. What do they sound like? So they've got a peep low, and I think we've got at least one recording about to play oh, here. Yeah? We just had people whip is this out competing? Phones. Is this competing recordings? <laughs> I have the I have the recording from the Sibley app. Okay. Oh, we okay. Have our bird. Shout out. <laughs> and let's hear some local variation on that call. <laughs> yes. Uh oh, you're putting on the spot now. (laughs) Here's their encounter calls when they meet with each other. I'm imagining that's a whole group of them? It's probably a male and a female. Okay. Um, If you see the, the making a nest, I would describe it as the male is making the scrape. He would kind of like lay on his belly and spin in a circle while kicking his feet to make the sand bowl out. And the female would kind of just stand there and cheer him on. <laughs> and they'd make all this noise while they were doing it. So if you were around when they started it, you'd find them. And then the female would sit in the nest and see if she liked it. And if she did like it, then they would do the goose stepping thing. If she didn't like it, she'd just kind of wander off and he'd have to go get her attention again, bring her back and build another scrape. And uh, sometimes you see her like bringing the seashells. So he'd be making the scrape and she'd run and grab all the seashells to decorate it. It was, they're such team effort. They're such characters. (laughs) Yeah. 
And Claire, you, you said you haven't seen that yet? I haven't personally seen that Well, with that only yet. one pair, it's going to yeah. be good. Yeah. 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 But hopefully in future years with more pairs, yeah. your chances will increase. Or even next, yeah, next year hopefully we'll have another pair with this same pair. Just uh, be out on the beach observing them more. I don't want our audience to miss out on this. You guys kind of painted a picture of an interaction between a plover and a semi-palmated sandpiper, right? Where it kind of like nestled in next to them. Could you yeah. guys just, just describe that scene for the audience really quick? Yeah, so because we have only one pair, um, they'll hang out together, but they often find other shorebirds to hang out with. And Shayna Johnson, our tech, was out here, and she observed this interaction. I'll let her tell you about it. So a uh, small other type of shorebird, sandpiper, saw two chicks just laying down. It was a really windy day. It walked over next to them, kind of looked around, and then lied it down with the two piping plover chicks and was like, hey, I'm a plover too. <laughs> <laughs> I can it in. <laughs> Maybe someone will feed me if I sit here. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so good to imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and you said you had pictures. I do. I can send them to you guys. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. We can post those on our social media. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. And before we close out, hitting on a few things that the public can do Perfect. to support. Um, a lot of it is just respecting the birds and giving them some space, especially if you bring a dog out to the beach, keeping it on a leash. So even if your dog is really well behaved and stays close to you and generally doesn't chase birds, the plover does a broken wing act to distract perceived predators. And so if it sees the dog trotting along the shoreline, whether it sees uh, the dog sees the chicks or the other plovers or not, it will start acting like it has a broken wing and kind of flopping around in the ground, leading the dog away from the chicks or attempting to. And so it can look really appealing to the dog to chase. So even if your dog's really well behaved, we encourage you to keep it on a leash to protect the plovers. Um, staying out of the fenced off areas to give them space to nest and forage also really is helpful and generally staying off of the protected dunes to protect their habitat too. All right, great, sounds good. Mm -hmm. One more comment, sorry to add on. Uh, another way that parks and the community here helps to protect plovers is dredging the channel. And so the access from North Sandy Pond to Lake Ontario is artificially kept open with dredging and that dredge material is actually placed on the beach and it's often where the plovers end up nesting because it has all of those shells in it that help camouflage the eggs and then also is a nice flat open area for them to nest on. Nice. Even one more thing that you can do to help plovers, whether you are at this beach enjoying the beach and also watching birds, or if you vacation south in Georgia or Florida and you want to look for banded birds, you can report band sightings at uh, greatlakespipingplover.org or email them directly to plover at umn.edu and then they'll email you back with the name of that bird and where it hatched and a little more information too so it's kind of fun the one one upside of having such a small population is that 
you kind of know the story about all of them so you can get individual information about the birds mm -hmm. so if people wanted to find out more information even if they don't have a band could they go to those websites absolutely yeah those okay. websites are really good resources and then for our pair here we have a facebook page um, under the name great lakes piping plovers of new york i believe yeah. okay and we'll make sure we have links to all of these in, awesome. the, in our episode description yeah well Let's wrap up. We just wanted to say thank you so much for contacting us, reaching out to us, making this happen. This was an awesome day. Steve and I are walking down the beach saying, oh, <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. I know. I'm behind a computer 24-7 nowadays, so I'm going to be very sunburned, but appreciative of this <laughs> later today. <laughs> but thank you so much for the work that you do and for letting us share it with people. Yeah, thanks for coming out. We loved having you guys sure. ask questions and learn about them. Yeah. And thank you to your team. Thank you, Shayna. Yeah. And thank you, Katie, even though you didn't want to talk on the mic. <laughs> it was nice to have you here. She was working the uh, spotting scope, helping us see the plovers down the beach. So thank you. And Tom? Thank you for inviting me to tag along today. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure. So long-time listeners finally got to hear your voice. Yeah. All I right. I think I mentioned it at the top of the episode, but another shout-out to all of our agencies that coordinate with us, U.S. Fish and Wildlife and SUNY ESF, the College of Environmental Science and Forestry, Onondaga Audubon, and then all of the staff at parks that helps out too. So it's a, it's a big effort here for the Pulvers. We appreciate everybody. It's yeah. awesome. All right. Well, first and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. Oh yeah, we got a few more, didn't we? Yeah, we did. So thank you, Elizabeth. Doodle Dude 82. <laughs> nice. And then we had a joint patron, Rachel and Leah. Nice. And we appreciate all our patrons, but at the end of every episode, we'd like to give a special shout out to our top patrons. So thank you, Hebranks, Alyssa Pease, Sean, Rich, Jessica, Rachel, Orange Julian, Dan, Diane, Ken, Rachel and Leah, Indigo, Doodle Dude 82. Some more top patrons. <laughs> nice. Elizabeth, Renz, J. Jean, Callie, Bob, Kazes, Jeff, Bruce, Bruce, Esther, John, Hollywog, Gavin, we named the dog Indy, and Rob. Thank you very much, everybody. We really appreciate your support, and it is through your support that we were able to take trips like this and make new and interesting episodes happen. Yeah, thank you guys so much. And don't forget, if you can't support us through Patreon but would like to make a donation, you can make a one-time donation on PayPal through our website. And if you can't afford to financially support the podcast, you can leave a review on iTunes or any podcatcher that you happen to use. That's right. Every review is appreciated, especially those sweet, sweet five-star <laughs> reviews. That's right. <laughs> so we're told that the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. Yeah. So we're all just moving ahead believing that that is true. So, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and folks, please check us out on all of our social media feeds. But if you have any ideas for episodes, if you want to make suggestions or comments, or if you would like to be the one to read our list of patrons, or just have a comment for us, drop us an email and you can record that. We mentioned it during our last episode. We love to hear actual audio from some of our listeners. Yeah, agreed. Uh, all right. So folks, thanks for listening. And before we sign off, parents, don't forget, get those kids outside, let them get muddy, let them get dirty, let them flip over rocks and logs. See you next month, guys. Bill, we are so close to home, and we nearly forgot that today's episode was brought to you by Come Leaf USA. <laughs>
We wouldn't forget. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> we love Gum Leaf USA. So long-time listeners know that Gum Leaf USA has been a sponsor of the Field Guides for a long time, and we appreciate their support. Jack, our contact, has been kind enough to give Steve and I pairs of Gum Leaf boots, which we have put to the test, and we have to say we love our Gum Leaf boots, right? Yeah. Yeah, we use them for everything from botanizing to herping to walking through swamps. Yeah. Yeah. Great boots. They're made of 80% natural rubber, which means they can bend and take a lot more abuse than boots that might look similar and cost less, but they're not going to last nearly as long as the high-quality gum leaf boots. Yeah, so if you're plovering, <laughs> you know what boots you're going to have to get. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're a patron of the podcast, there's a special offer code in the episode notes to get you free shipping on your next order of gum leaf boots. So check out gumleafusa.com. All right, I think we got everything this time. <laughs> I think so. All right, bye, guys. Bye-bye. What I'll do is I'll say, uh, well, let's talk what, about what listeners can do okay. in, a, in a few minutes. And I can say, but Tom, Tom has something he wants to say. Sure. But then you can say... Just one second. I just wanted to let everybody know what we named the chicks this year. <laughs> oh, okay. Is that really the best way to do it? Why not? Yes. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Let's him. do it. Okay, I trust Bill. We're always top notch. I trust, I trust Bill. You let's can put that in there. Your, top, your podcast is always top notch. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> right. We won't cut all your parts out of the episode. <laughs> Steve will. All right.